Welcome to Tech Whisperers, the podcast that takes you inside the playbook of the world's best digital leaders. This is a show for digital and business leaders who are passionate about learning from the industry shapers and market makers. Join your host, Dan Roberts, as he unpacks the unique stories, leadership philosophies, and answer the call moments that define and differentiate the best leaders of our day. Our goal is to help you gain an edge and move you beyond your comfort zone so that you are driving more impact and value for your team, your company, and your career. Let's get into the show and hear from another amazing Tech Whisperer. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Tech Whispers podcast. I'm Dan Roberts, your host. And for this week's episode, we're doing something really, really special. In honor of Veterans Day and as a tribute to our veterans, I've invited three amazing guests, all our powerhouse CIOs today, but also all our military veterans. They cut their teeth early in their careers in the military and so learned a lot about leadership from that vantage point. Mike Goodwin is the CIO for PetSmart. Many of us know Mike. He's also on the board of directors for Burlington Stores. Mike is a West Point graduate. He was an Army officer and is someone who always inspires and challenges me in great ways and really appreciate him being here today. Diana Timjohn is a four-time CIO who now advises and mentors CXOs across different industries. In her spare time, she also owns two businesses, with her second one being Hammerhand Coffee, which is based in Liberty, Missouri. So when you're in the Kansas City area, go visit Hammerhand and show a little love to Diana and her, her company. Diana also graduated from West Point, like Mike, and served as an Army military intelligence officer. And I'll mention that her son is currently enrolled in West Point, so certainly a chip off the old block. Last but not least, we have Woody Groton, the CIO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Draper, and also a brigade commander for the Army National Guard. Woody has served in the Army for over 25 years on active duty and also in the reserve components. His wife just returned from deployment. They have six people in his family who are active in the Army today. His wife just got back from Poland, having served there. His son is still on deployment and just proving once again that the fruit does not fall far from the tree. So we wish his son well and welcome to the three of you. I'm so glad that you're here today. Diana, let's jump into it. I want to start with you. Like you all, our audience loves data. They love the data, right? So I want to start with some interesting data around leadership and leadership development. And this is mind-boggling. The friends over at Zanger Folkman tell me that the average age of a first-time leader, this is in the civilian world, is 27 years old. Multi-year study, okay? So this is a long, long time study. The second data point was the first formal leadership development that people get is age 46. What could go wrong in those 19 years in between, Diana? So talk about that. You know, you're shaking your head, which that's what I did too. Compare that to your experience in the military. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I think it's a great question because when you're in the military, you don't actually appreciate what's happening, which is that leadership starts from day one. And you think about just tactically in terms of progression, you've got privates who want to be private first classes, you have private first classes who want to be specialists and so on. There's this idea of growth is important, progression is important. And so early on, the idea that everybody has an opportunity to lead starts with that private. It started with me when I was uh, at West Point, I was a, a freshman, 
my second year there, I suddenly have a person I'm accountable for, responsible for. And you know, my third year there, I had a squad and then I had a platoon and a company and so forth. And that continued in the military where there's always this sort of informal opportunities to lead people and the idea that leadership development sort of never ends. When I transitioned into the civilian world, I was sort of looking around for that mentor model and it it really wasn't there. It really wasn't. And suddenly I would see peers of mine be thrust into management positions and they might be 28, 29 years old and have never had any sort of training or teaching. And meanwhile, for me, I'd had 10 years of progressive kind of leadership experience. So I think, you know, there's something there that the military does that I wish we could do better in the civilian world, which is really the idea that one, progression matters. So let's make sure everybody kind of continues to see it doesn't always mean promotion. It can be more accountability and responsibility. The other is that there's a great deal of learning and development that you can do just from peer leadership and small team leadership. And that the idea that you could continuously have a mentor should be something that is expected in the civilian world. For me, I had to seek it out. Mike was one of my mentors. And, you know, all of us probably had to seek people out to teach and train us. But certainly in the military, that's just what they do sort of naturally. Yeah, really rich insights. And it's interesting you mentioned coming into the civilian world and looking for that mentor framework or infrastructure. You know, we have a leadership program. We have hundreds of people around the world in it concurrently. And I would say 80 to 90% of these middle managers in IT have never had a mentor. Like we set them up with a mentor. It's a brand new experience. And, you know, you're all thinking, wow, how, how does that happen? Right. So interesting points you made, you know, Mike, one of the things I've, I like to do in the podcast is I like to reach out to folks in our audience and have them provide questions. So I've got five amazing questions, all CXOs and all in the civilian workforce, but all coming from the military as well. So let's listen in and I'll have you take this first one. Hi, my name is Susan Courtney and I am currently the executive vice president at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska in charge of operations and clinical effectiveness. I was in the U.S. Navy for six years and when I was in the Navy, I flew on a Boeing 707 aircraft as part of Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron 4 as a navigator, airborne communications officer, and a mission commander. And the question I have for the panelists today, could you tell me what were one or two of the most valuable leadership lessons or experiences that you had when you were in the military that prepared you for civilian leadership? Now, we're not going to do any of the Army-Navy jokes, right, Mike? We're going to just... (laughs) No, we're we're all good here. Well, first of all, I'd like to say um, thanks again for allowing me to be on a panel here, both with Woody and Diana. Um, And also, thanks to Susan for the question, and more importantly, thanks for her service also. One of the things that I would say that I learned in the military that I've translated into the corporate world was really three things. The importance of clarity of context, clarity of mission, and clarity of the collective, how you fit into that. And the reason, and you're going to see three things, it's going to be a theme with me here as we go forward here. I probably may talk about that a little bit later. But the reason why I think those three things are important is typically you can plan every outcome or you can even plan the mission. And the chances that it's going to go 100% as planned, it's not always there. And so things are going to go awry. Things are going to change. I think it's really important, especially as I learned in the military, to understand know, what's the context of why we're doing this? What is, why is this mission important? You know, what's the, the goal there? The other thing is clarity of what actually is the mission itself. What is it we're trying to accomplish? 
And a third thing is how do you fit into the total picture of things? Um, you know, what's the context or the collective mission that we're part of? And by having that push down into the organization and creating constructs to do that, which the military did very well in terms of how we had our, our op orders and how we push those down across the different units. So when things do go awry, it gives us the opportunity for those units to adjust in the situation. There's no way a commander or a leader can micromanage in real time when things go wrong. They're gonna to have to really rely on those folks on the ground to make those decisions, make those adjustments. And I think you're seeing that actually play out in Ukraine. Um, if you're following what's happening that's over there, you've actually got the generals literally at the front line trying to lead and make those real-time decisions. And so the Ukrainians figured it out. So, okay, well, let's just pick off the generals. And when that happened, you saw a lot of chaos occur because those three things weren't in place. So I think that definitely translates into the corporate world also is where if you can have that same clarity across the context, the mission, as well as to collect the role that you play, you're empowering those leaders to make those adjustments for those business outcomes you're trying to achieve. At the same time, you're not going to be in every meeting and every project review. You don't have to really rely on those folks understanding all those pieces to make those adjustments. So that was really ingrained in me personally. And there were constructs in the Army when I did that across all the services. And I think that's something that definitely translated well in Guadalajara that I use to this day. So good. Yeah. So context, clarity, collective mission, uh, power of threes. And we will come back to that, Mike. It's one of uh, the secret sauce of great communication. And thank you, Susan Courtney. Good friend. And I promise you, I'm coming back to Omaha so we can break bread again. So look look forward to that. Woody, we've got another great question from a good friend of mine, Robert Sheasley. So I'd love to have you uh, listen and then respond to his question. Hello, this is Robert Sheasley, Chief Information Officer with Wrench Group. Served in the Marine Corps from 1987 to 1991, four years. And my question is grounded and anchored in one of the leadership principles of General Colin Powell. Leadership is solving problems. The day soldiers stop bringing you their problems is the day you have stopped leading them. My question is related to this quote, this leadership principle. Can you provide an example of when a soldier or subordinate has brought a significant problem to you and you assisted or helped guide them in solving that problem and what the outcome was? Great question, Woody. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for, again, the opportunity to be here and, and to really highlight Veterans Day and what that means. And Colin Powell is one of my favorite leaders. I was in Desert Storm, so he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs then. And I, I frequently you know, look at his 13 rules for leadership. So something that happened pretty recently. So we have a cyber unit in the New Hampshire National Guard that's in my brigade. And the commander was very stressed. Our adjutant general is very uh, aggressive in, in doing a lot of missions for our state partnership program. And the state partnership program is where the National Guard works with emerging nations to provide subject matter expertise. So we have four cyber engagements scheduled for this year. And the first one is starting very quickly. And this particular captain was very concerned because he wasn't used to having support and thought that he had to do all of the logistics himself. And I said, absolutely not. I have a brigade staff that's very talented. They will take care of all the logistical issues, details, the pay, the travel, all of that. And then all you need to do is get the soldiers who are going to go on that mission and to have focus on the cyber subject matter expertise that you're providing. You know, I can't solve a problem that I don't know about. So I think it's important as leaders that we encourage our subordinates to bring their problems to us. And you know, another part to that is, you know, a lot of times they kind of already might have an idea of what they need, what they want to do. So one of the first things I'll ask, well, what's your recommendation? 
because nine times out of 10, they already know what they want. They're just looking for confirmation that what they're doing is right, that I've got their back and I'm going to give them the resources. And then finally, you know, we have to allow people to make honest mistakes. And that's going to happen over time too. make honest mistakes, learn. from. But as I say, integrity is absolute. Fantastic. And Robert, really appreciate that, that question. And Deanna, before we jump into the next question from the audience, I'd be interested in your response to Mike Tyson's famous quote, right? I think it kind of relates on many levels here, but he would say, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah. Does that resonate with, with your mindset around planning? It does. I've heard a different version, you know, all good plans fall away at the first bullet. You know, that's a little bit more specific and tactical, but Mike Goodwin mentioned it which is that, you know, really most plans are aspirational. They're not realistic. And, you know, there are these wonderful and terrible intersections where you face up against a different person or a different collection of people who have a very different mindset and suddenly you've got to react. And, you know, I think early in my career, I thought there was a perfect plan. I I thought I could build a perfect plan and I would seek out every opportunity to make that plan as perfect as possible. And what I learned was a second quote, Dan, that I actually think is wonderful, which is a good plan well executed far outweighs a perfect plan never or poorly executed. The idea that let's shape a good plan and then let's realize our reactions matter more than anything else. In the civilian world, when I started leading in the civilian world, I realized that because of my inexperience in civilian settings, there were oftentimes things I couldn't predict because I just wasn't, I hadn't had that experience yet. And in IT in particular, every day, there's something new that we get introduced that we're supposed to implement perfectly. And we might do it one time in our entire career. So I really lean on that idea that let's build a really good plan. And then let's really, to put it in in a a one-way war game, triage, what could happen? Let's think through those reactions. Let's build in contingency. The other piece, and then I'll, I'll stop, is that plans are only as good as the leaders who are in place to kind of help direct and guide them. And, you know, Mike was talking about those generals up front who are leading and directing on the Russian, and that didn't work. The reality, though, is you have to have leaders at those intersections along the way where they can react, they can think through, they can pull an asset forward, like Woody said, you know, bring somebody who's got a good idea forward, bring some creativity and solve it. So I think, Dan, if we can do nothing as leaders, it's to really help the next generation realize, like, there are no perfect plans, there are only good plans. And what you have to try to be is really a leader brave enough and courageous enough to say, I don't actually have all the answers. So let's work on how we're going to react. Let's build in some ways that we can manage contingency and, and make sure the outcomes still get to what we need to. I appreciate the three of you in terms of your servant leadership approaches and philosophies and your humility. So it really is consistent with that. And yeah, I appreciate that. And you know, there's another great guest question from Dan Bruno. My name is Dan Bruno. And I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Duke Health Technology Solutions, providing technology support and solutions to Duke University Health System. I retired from the United States Army as a colonel after 30 years of service. My last assignment in the Army, I was the garrison commander of West Point and the United States Military Academy. Dan and panel, on behalf of veterans, I am grateful for this tribute today. We often hear, and I have experienced firsthand at Duke, our veterans have a unique experience base from their service. Characteristics like adaptability, resilience, and the ability to more easily pivot 
During these past three turbulent years, have you noticed this amongst the veterans you employ? Thank you. So, Woody, maybe you could take the first part of that question. Yeah, the military mindset is one of don't fail. No matter what, you know, even if we're limited soldiers, resources, et cetera, that we have to accomplish the mission. But you have to balance that to avoid burnout. I previously mentioned I'm a brigade commander of the New Hampshire Army National Guard. And during the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Guard executed unprecedented missions, you know, testing later vaccine sites. We ran PPE warehouses. We supported the prisons, all of that. So IT is very similar in the last several years because we had to practically overnight transform to support work from home, remote workforce. So at Draper, we have a large number of currently serving Guard reservists and their ability to kind of roll with the punches and and to, you know, in stressful situations, some type of upgrade or some type of update doesn't go right to be able to deal with that. I think that that's another part of that resiliency and that adaptability. And I think as IT leaders, you know, we all need to be able to lead change very quickly when it when something like the pandemic came into place. And I think that IT across the world really did a great job with that. And I think it really highlighted the value of IT, the value of the CIO and the IT staff. And having veterans among that staff certainly bring all of those military attributes. And I think they help and that their outlook, their adaptability, it certainly sets a good example for their fellow coworkers. Yeah, yeah. Well well said. And you know, Mike, maybe you could take the second part of Dan's, Dan's question. And, you know, the, certainly the last two, three years have been pretty unprecedented in terms of the stress and strain on our people, our leaders. And have you seen a, a difference in how your veterans show up? First of all, I would say is that I don't want to suggest that it's only veterans that are able to be cool and calm on the fire and drive because I've seen a lot of great leaders. But what I will say is that veterans do have the opportunity to be exposed to that probably more frequently than the average um, greater population. Um, and they're typically in a lot of life or death situations, especially when in conflict and in the major um, battles that are occurring right now, unfortunately. So COVID definitely was an unprecedented time. I know that's a word that's overused, but it definitely was unprecedented. I mean, when you think about it, it was a global crisis also. I mean, there was no playbook on how to do this. Um, there were fears and anxiety across all levels of the organization. And if you kind of draw back to the veterans, what they go through when they draw upon those experience in life and death situations, I do think it translates where veterans in general definitely have the opportunity to try to balance the emotional aspects of what's going on because things kind of get heated, things go wrong. Like I mentioned earlier, Woody mentioned earlier also in terms of his experiences too, is that first things you got to get the unit focused and really keep them calm and get back to the mission. And that's something that's practiced over and over and over again in the military. And translate that into the civilian world, if you have that kind of innate behavior that's ingrained into you, it becomes more of a natural instinct to where, okay, let's focus, let's get things calm, let's get things to a point where we can think and still accomplish the outcomes we're trying to achieve that's there. And so I think that's important where you're balancing that aspect of it, of getting the situation under control to getting back to the mission that's at hand so you can accomplish the outcomes you're trying to do. And then understanding how that's going to continue to flux throughout the entire life cycle. I mean, there's the beginning of COVID, there's COVID, and then there's post-COVID. And each of those are different stages that organizations have had to go through. Same thing in the military, as you mentioned, you have the different phases of the mission also. 
So it's not surprising to, to hear Dan's experience about how veterans tend to excel. I'm not saying they're the only ones, but a lot of that's because of the training and really the nature of the situation, the mission, and then how to adjust as you go into that. And I think that gives veterans that they should be sought out that give that advantage in terms of leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I love that perspective. And thank you, Dan Bruno. I learned something new every time I talk to Dan. I always appreciate him. You know, Woody, uh, just, you know, Mike mentioned the term context earlier. In your office in Cambridge, Mass, is a whiteboard. Do you mind sharing what uh, phrases on that whiteboard? Yeah, in fact, I, I had it in my notes for the next answer, but uh, in the upper right corner, it says, remember, we're not getting shot at. So I think that's a lot about stress and, and it puts things into perspective. And my staff, it's really resonated with them and, and they'll bring it up in meetings and everything. I also have Colin Powell, for, uh, you know, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier on there. And then the other one I have is perception is reality. So those are just some of the kind of little nuggets. But, you know, the whole thing about Hey, we're not getting shot at. It's going to be okay. You know, it'll all be here tomorrow. That's good perspective. And I want to pull in a question from John Hill, incredible CXO. John's got some, some uh, two questions I want to kind of pull in. And, and Woody, I'd like to have you take this first question, maybe double click on some of those great Woodyisms you just shared. So let's listen in for John's question. My name is John Hill. I'm the Chief Digital Information Officer for MSC Industrial Supply. Amongst my experience, I started in the military after having graduated from the Air Force Academy. So my first five years of my professional life was as a military officer. And my question to the panel is, what is it about the military experience that makes veterans ideal candidates for a career in technology leadership? Love that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the answer is in his question, leadership. You know, it's the last thing he said. You know, not just management, but leadership. Leadership under fire. You know, say obviously in IT we're not in danger, but it can get really stressful. You know, we have incidents or planned upgrades that don't go as planned. As a young platoon leader, I personally led 30 soldiers in combat. And that gets back to, you know, having responsibility early. I was only 25 years old, but I was given this great responsibility for not only completing the mission, but doing my best to ensure that all my soldiers made it home. And I mentioned, you know, on the written on my wall, hey, we're not getting shot at. You know, I've been shot at and it's highly overrated, but you know, that's but it does put her, her things in perspective, and it's helped me to remain calm as an IT leader. I think the other thing is that adaptability and, and, and how an IT technology changes so quickly. And we have to deal with change every day and, and be adaptable. And I think that happens a lot in the military as well. As new technology comes in or you're getting transferred, you have new leaders, new leaders come and go every year or two. Uh, I just think it, that just that we have technical background, but we also have the leadership experience that the military brings. So it's both sides of that equation. Yeah, great question, John. I appreciate those perspectives, Woody. And Diana, he had another question I'm going to just kind of share with you and, and have you talk to it. But he talked about what is it about the military experience that enables veterans to react to emerging situations or to trying projects and are able to jump in and fix those, right? They're able to, they, they tackle things that others might not tackle. How'd you go about building those muscles and mindset yourself, Diana? Yeah, yeah. I think Mike talked a little bit about it. Woody did as well. After I graduated the academy, I spent five years in the army and I did five jobs in that five years. You know, I was an XO running a motor pool and a team of, you know, supply specialists. I was a senior intelligence officer where I had interrogators and signals intelligence folks work for me, which sounds a lot cooler than it actually is. It's just a lot of hard work. You know, I could go on, but my experience was not dissimilar to a lot of 
folks in the military, you know, you move every couple of years, you're thrust into a new unit, you're with new leaders all the time, you know, platoon leaders are changing out. So some of that, Dan, is about the mindset to bloom where you're planted and to really get a foundation of skills that really work in any situation. And when I transitioned into the civilian world, I really couldn't do anything but tackle, you know, problems to solve and and try to simplify it into terms that I understood, which was, hey, we've got a set of skills. Let's take those set of skills regardless of the problem. Now, my experience was teams were unused to that. They were taught failure was something you avoided. So you did the same thing you'd always done in exactly the same way. You didn't put your head out and raise your hand. And, And that was culturally a lot of the teams that I, you know, ended up being a part of and ultimately getting to lead. And so I had to very quickly sort of create that, hey, we're going to we're going to build a foundation of skills. We're going to rely on confidence that each of you are leaders and we're going to agree that most situations have roughly the same parameters. They just show up a little bit differently. And then more important than anything as a leader, we're going to let you fail. We're going to agree that iteration is king and we're going to do something wrong a couple of times and we're going to learn from it. We're going to build processes and then we're going to do that right the next time. And I think that, Dan, is really, to me, what I learned from folks who gave me those same sort of mentor, kind of safe place, if you will, to succeed. And I've tried to do that the same with my teams. All of our audience who is aspiring to go into leadership or as you're as you're moving up the ladder, just so many nuggets, you know, already so far. And this notion of bloom where you're planted, right? You know, I think sometimes we get a little bit whiny, right? It's like, eh, I don't want to be here, but there's someone who puts you there for a reason, right? And just maybe trust and, and give it the 110%. And, and I can't tell you how many leaders over the years have talked about being a blind spot, not realizing until much later how that was a gift. And so, yeah, great teaching there, Diana. Thank you, John Hill, uh, who, by the way, just completed his PhD. Amazing and incredibly interesting dissertation he did, uh, doctoral dissertation. You all have these big jobs and you still find time to do this stuff on the side. I don't know how you do it. But another great question, Mike, I'll have you take this one from J.C. Glick, one of my uh, one of my true heroes. So let's listen into J.C.'s question. Hey, my name is J.C. Glick. I was fortunate enough to do 20 years in the military, did 11 combat tours, spent most of my time with the 75th Ranger Regiment or in the Asymmetric Warfare Group. Since then, I've been fortunate enough to be a leadership consultant and advisor and work with sports teams and corporations on improving culture and leadership at scale. My question is, would most CIOs rather they hire someone who is tech savvy and understands the technical components and are experts at their technical field Or would they rather hire someone who could be taught that stuff, but would be really good at leadership and moving up the chain and maybe was less comfortable with the uh, technical aspects or not as skilled at the technical aspects, but would learn it, but were better leaders? Mike, I'll let you you take that one. Sure. JC, thanks for the question and thanks for your esteemed um, career and service you had. I'm sure Woody appreciates you. I see Woody's wearing his Ranger tab. So uh, there's an affiliation there also. Um, what I can tell you from my personal experience, and you know, even when I started going in, when I went into the Army, my first job in the Army was a second lieutenant as a, as a FIST leader. And when I joined, even though I had gone through all the training in school, everyone there in that unit knew more than I did day one when I started. And so there was no illusion that I had that I would come in and be able to lead them on all technical aspects of it. 
So I had to learn and I had to learn from them. And a lot of questions I get from those that know that I was in the military, I said, wow, you're in the military, you're an officer. It was probably easy to leave. You just, you know, just give them a lawful order to do what you needed to do. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, yeah, if I gave a lawful order, they would have to follow the bare minimum to get that lawful order completed. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the maximum potential of the organization or the individuals. And so really it comes down to leadership, building, respect the individual and not necessarily respecting the rank. And so in my entire time in the military, I went into jobs where I had to learn and, and I was a learner. So I had learning agility, but I wasn't going in there to be the technical expert. It really was what did I needed to do to lead this organization so they can accomplish the mission. I needed to know enough to be able to give guidance, to be able to ask the right questions. But the more important thing was I need to rely on my leadership skills to help motivate them, to help them understand the mission, the importance of it and why we're trying to accomplish that. And that's what I carried also into the corporate world. My first management job in a corporate world, I had the most technical group that was put together as a result of a reorg. And so uh, it was a group of very, very, very smart folks. Every one of them a lot smarter than I was. So my intent was not necessarily to do that. And as so mine, uh, so I've always used this as a guidepost for my career as I continue to grow is that be technical savviness, willing to learn, ask the right questions, know what right questions to ask. And as you move further and further up in the organization, leadership becomes more and more part. It's less about studying the technical aspects of the job. It's really more about being a student of leadership and how you create and galvanize the organization to achieve those accomplishments. So that's something that the Army taught me early. They have frameworks, they have constructs to be able to do that, that I was able to apply and take with me when I went into the corporate world. And I use that to this day. I am not afraid to hire people that are smarter than me. In fact, I have to do that um, to fill in the gaps. And not necessarily just on the technical side of things, but sometimes on some of the leadership things. If there's a leadership blind spot that I have, then what kind of can I supplement that to make sure I have that point of view on my team? So I think as you progress in the organization, you're always going to be in an uncomfortable situation. We're not going to have all the answers, but you have to have the right organization, right people around you that can be, get to that point and accomplish the outcomes. So good. And, you know, JC, like you all, has parlayed his military experience into an amazing civilian career. I can't name names, but the corporate executives, the professional coaches, especially NFL even some players that he coaches and advises is like uh, the who's who's list. So great job. And thank you, JC. You know, Mike, you and I have talked a lot over the years about how great leaders are, are great communicators, right? And, and we're not known for that in our profession. In fact, we have a lot of assessment data around that. That's it's one of the Achilles still today. Talk about, you mentioned earlier about communicating in threes, the power of threes, and there's something to it. Can you talk to that in terms of your intentionality? and Why is it important? Yeah, I think the power of three, and if there have been studies that have gone on to where people tend to remember things in threes. Um, believe it or not, you can remember um, more in threes than you can twos or fours. And, and it's a discipline that I've ascribed to. And, you know, Donna and I work well together. She maybe remembers some of our days in the past where everything was in the power of threes here. But that by itself won't get you there. It's that combined with a communications construct, basically, so you can exercise it up and down the organization. And that's one of the things that I learned early in the Army also and throughout my, the time that I was in the Army, where they had established communication constructs that was effective at pushing information up and getting information down to the organization. 
And so when I joined the corporate world, I created sort of my own kind of constructs around that, or I learned from a lot of constructs on having that formality in place so that it can be executed while you're there or not. But I think the key thing that made that effective, and you alluded to it, Dan, was really the power of three. What are the three things at every communication touch point, at every construct you're going to create that you want somebody to take out of the messages at the time? And it could be the three things that needs to be consistent where, okay, I want to make sure this, this is drilled enough that the organization understands it before you move on to the next three things. In fact, it's gotten to a point in my organization where folks joke with me, they're waiting for the third thing. I'll start with first, second. It's okay, Mike, where's your third one? Okay. <laughs> or sometimes I'll get accused of forcing things into threes, basically. <laughs> and so at least what they're getting it. I mean, so they got three in their minds. Like, what are the three things I want to take from that? And so I think really, for me personally, is that learning in the military, the importance of communications up and down and finding a way for it to resonate and be able to retain. The power of three is something I learned in a leadership course a long time ago that I've continued to apply to this day and I think it's effective. Yeah, great, great tip. I'm, and my wife tells me all the time, even in design, like the mantle, should be three things in the mantle, no more, no less. That's just the right, the right balance. So it all comes back to three. Well, you know, I want to give a shout out. As you all know, my son, Kelly, was a uh, Army Ranger like JC and has had a great experience there. He always would talk about the AAR, like after every mission, after every training exercise, they would do the AAR. And I always thought, why don't we do that in the corporate world? And so, you know, Woody, I want to have you take that. Tell us what the AAR is. But also, Woody, you've got a son. You've got a lot of family members who are active right now. So, I mean, we are being served very well by the Groton family there. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for that. And, and thanks you know, for your son and his distinguished service as well. You know, I never had the, the honor of serving in the Ranger Regiment, but it, it's something that uh, I had friends from college that did. It, it just epitomizes excellence, you know, in the military. Yeah, I had the honor of pinning my son's Ranger tab last spring. And, and as the father of a second generation Ranger, it was an extremely proud moment for me during the graduation, at the, really near the beginning of it. To say all you know, all personnel in the audience who have a son or daughter graduated today, please stand. And it just like gave me chills to think about you know what he had been through and, and knowing for myself. Uh, I posted some pictures of that um, of me pinning his tab on LinkedIn had over a hundred thousand views. So I think that kind of story resonates with people. So the AAR is the after action review, and it, it is just part and parcel to everything you do in the military. It's where you review whether it's a project, a ceremony, an incident, a training event, combat, whatever, to document what went right and what you can improve on. And as Diana mentioned before, you know, the Army, we're going to let you fail. It's going to happen. And you're going to learn from that. Uh, I'll say that in my experience in the military, AARs can be brutal. Like, we did this, we did this, we screwed this up, we did that, we did the other. Oh, yeah, we did this one thing right. Let's sustain that. Uh, in my civilian experience, I've seen that some organizations are hesitant to discuss what went wrong because they don't want to look bad. But that's not what it's about. It's about having you know, the ability and leadership that will tolerate those mistakes and learn from them. We have to, if someone makes an honest mistake, it's going to happen. And just don't repeat it and learn from it and do better. And that really makes you a learning organization. That's something I asked the CEO when I was coming to Draper. I'm like, is Draper a learning organization? Because to me, a learning organization is a great organization. Yeah, well said. Well said. Diana, the AAR, is that um, you're big on every soldier is a leader, right? You expect everyone in your organization to be a leader. 
Does the AAR, is that one of the, the tools that equips to build the muscle for that kind of thing to take place for that to, to be executed? Yeah, I think I think it definitely did in the military. I think what Woody was explaining, how sometimes I've seen it play out on the civilian world, it can have the opposite of that. You know, I think candidly leadership is just having the confidence to have a plan and then influence people to follow that, right? Because Mike was right. Yeah, you can direct even in any, no matter how high up in the organization, you can say, do this. And if people don't believe it, they do the bare minimum. So that confidence then is really, really important, especially with young leaders who haven't a lot of experience. They just have instinct. And I think sometimes the AARs in the military were really reassuring because they saw, you know, these powerful NCOs, these first sergeants, these platoon sergeants out there admitting, hey, we should have done that better. And next time I'll do this. And that that modeling that, hey, it's okay, you know, maybe. And he's still respected. He's actually respected more. So I think in the military, it definitely does. In the civilian world, if it's not executed well. It, it strips and it takes people's confidence away. And so you have fewer leaders and you just have a lot of followers. So one of the things about kind of ingraining into the civilian workforce is in the best way possible, that same mindset that, hey, let's talk about, you know, what happened here and let's let's not point blame, let's not use names, <laughs> let's use things. So what problems surfaced, which teams could have solved it, what was in the way, how were those blockers tackled? And that kind of language, Dan, is hard to learn because initially, you know, it, it, you don't have that skill set. You, you're sort of like, well, Mike was at fault. Well, Woody should have done this. And then as a leader, you've got to say, hold on, let's back up. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, you know, let's talk about why. What were the things that got in their way that made that happen? So I think if you can't create that, it's really hard to then allow people the chance to ever take that first leadership role. They, they're terrified of it. But once you've in, created that environment where, hey, first failure isn't the end of your career, then I think you can build in that culture where people then start to take really good risks. They really start to talk more. They communicate um, and, you know, that ties back to that whole piece about no good plan ever is executed perfectly. You know, when those things happen, you build in that culture where there's a really strong set of reactions and trust and people lean on each other. So, yeah, I, I wish we did more of it, but I sure think in the military, it, it gave all of us a, a really good set of strong shoulders to sort of absorb some criticism and move on. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you were talking, Diana, as, as you all have been sharing I've been thinking back at a number of the uh, the podcast conversations I've been having. With, again, all all the best leaders, the best leaders, and the all idea, the idea of leading with heart, H E A R T, just resonates. And heart being an acronym, I've been finding it's it's resonating these attributes. And heart stands for humility, empathy, adaptability, resiliency, transparency. You've you've talked about all these today incredibly, and that transparency you just talked about. Diana, I think it really builds resiliency, builds confidence, right, in terms of, of our people. And I don't think we spend enough time on that, thinking about that, the importance of that today. So I appreciate your, your perspective. And I've been looking forward to get, you know, this next question. Woody, I'm going to have you speak on behalf of the group here, but we have a real passion for doing tech for good, right? We all, we, the four of us do, my team. And, you know, as a company, we're donating $125,000 in scholarships to our Tech LX Leadership Program, nine-month cohort-based program. And uh, Woody and, and Mike, you've had several people on it. You both mentor in the program. Thank you very much. Diana, we definitely want to get you plugged in as a mentor because you're amazing. But Woody, we as a group here today have the ability to gift a seat in that program to one of your favorite nonprofits, STEM-related, 
and I'd love it for it to be veteran related. So what do the three of you come up with? Yeah, so we decided on the Student Veterans of America, uh, SBA. It's the premier organization leading service research programs and advocacy for veterans in higher education. Their vision is to empower student veterans to lead and live their best lives. Their mission is to act as a catalyst for student veteran success by providing resources, network support, and advocacy to, through, and beyond higher education. So through a network of more than 1,500 on-campus chapters, SBA has been inspiring tomorrow's leaders since 2008 ensure that they achieve their greatest potential. And, you know, Draper is there in Cambridge, Massachusetts, surrounded by MIT and Harvard, you know, two of the best schools in the country. And I've had a lot of interaction with veterans. And I think those non-traditional students have a great impact on their peer students and as well as the, the faculty and their professors. So, you know, fostering veterans and supporting them through higher education. And there's a little bit of a transition too, especially, you know, you come from the military and all of a sudden, you're a little bit older and, and you're in a campus environment. So it's just really good to have that type of peer organization there to support you. So again, thank you so much for your support of that. I love that. I cannot wait to get them plugged in and, and uh, we'll get them on our website too, so we can promote that organization and all their good work. And, you know, unfortunately we're kind of at the end of our, our time, which really uh, bums me out. because I've got like two more hours of questions for you three that, uh, but Good news is we're going to continue our dialogue and I'm going to write a blog about the three of you quoting you really digging into your career advice because you've got some really astute career advice on on uh, how do you climb the ladder? How do you shift? You know, the idea of perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. I think it's one of yours, uh, uh, Woody. And then, Mike, you've got today's high bars, tomorrow's expectations. So we're going to talk about these topics in the blog post that will come out next Thursday. And meanwhile, I just want to thank thank you all for sharing. Thank you for your service again. I know this is an important month for you as veterans and serving as you continue to do. So thank you for that. As we go out here, thanks to my producer, Ryan, and the team for putting in different music, special music for this episode. So thank you all very much. <laughs>